the First World War and for the first time in the history of man, nations combined to fight against nations using the crude weapons of those days. The Second World War involved every continent on the globe and men turned to science for new devices of warfare which reached an unparalleled peak in their capacity for destruction. And now, fought with the terrible weapons of super science, menacing all mankind and every creature on Earth, comes the War of the World. Hey everyone, welcome back to Every Version Ever, finally. My name is Jonathan North, and today we're finally getting back to our series on H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. We had some significant schedule delays, but I was able to get a new co-host, two actually, so we are finally able to get into our second episode talking about the first big film adaptation of the story, 1953's The War of the Worlds, starring Gene Barry and Anne Robinson. Something I didn't know before I started this series was how influential this film was in cinema history, so much so that it was selected for the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress, and was made a part of the Criterion Collection, which is a collection of some of history's most influential or culturally significant films. So with that in mind, when I had to find a new co-host for this episode, I immediately thought of two people, Rachel Wagner and Conrado Falco. I'm sure you'll be familiar with Rachel, she's been on the podcast before, and she's been a frequent co-host throughout the last several years I've been podcasting and doing YouTube. One of Rachel's many online ventures is her podcast with Conrado, The Criterion Project, where they review a new Criterion film every month. So when I read that this was a Criterion film, I knew I wanted them to join me for this episode, and I was so happy when they agreed. Well, I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about is how familiar are you guys with the original War of the Worlds? Like, have you read the book at all? Uh, I am not familiar at all. I just, I've seen the Spielberg version and I've seen this. Okay. And I know about the radio version. Okay. Yeah, we're basically the same, Conrado and I, on on that. I I'm not that familiar with it, but I have seen the Spielberg movie, and I have uh, I've heard pieces of the radio uh, thing, and I know of the history of the of the property, I guess, but I mm-hmm. ha- I I'm not that familiar with it. Okay. Yeah. Weirdly enough, this is this is not really a kids' book, but I liked this book as a kid. Like, I had an abridged version, so I've been a fan for years, which is why I wanted to do this series. So this is one that's kind of been a long time coming, and I'd never seen this 53 version before I started working on this for the podcast. So this was, like, brand new for me, even though this is, I mean, until Spielberg made his, this is, like, the definitive version. Mm -hmm. So I guess since you have seen at least one other version... What are your thoughts between the two? Like, do you prefer this one or do you prefer the Spielberg version? Um, I probably prefer the other version, the Spielberg version. Um, I am a big Steven Spielberg fan, so I'm going to put that out there first and foremost. But even then, I think there's something about the, the Spielberg version that I feel is, I can see very much what he was trying to say with that version. He was, you know, it was after 9-11 and there's a lot of that kind of Mm. imagery and he's trying to wrestle with all of that kind of being attacked and and world in chaos and that's, and he was doing a lot of that around that time in his career. You know, I feel like that, that same year he did that movie Munich, which also feels very much like a, response to to 9-11 and what happened afterwards 
Uh, whereas with this 1953 version, I, um, I guess it has something to do with the Cold War, but I don't think it has that much of a political opinion, or at least it's not as clear to me. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I think I actually, I think I did like this version better, just because it's a little bit more succinct. And uh, one of my problems with with science fiction movies in general is they tend to be a bit bloated. I don't know. I just kind of liked that this just clipped along very quickly, and I felt like the uh, the whole idea of the I mean, both of them have the the microbes that's basically that end up saving the day, mm-hmm. but. I, th- I liked that idea that I felt like it was more hammered home here and maybe that wouldn't turn some people off, but I liked it that it's the small, simple things that we think the atomic bombs and the big schemes of man are going to solve the world's problems. But in reality, it's the, the small, in, in this case, bacterial level, <laughs> small things that, that really actually make a difference. I, that was the message as far as a political message and maybe that's a Sunday school message, but that's what I took from it. And I kind of felt like that was more, more well done in this. Mm-hmm. And, but merely just for pacing is the more main reason why I would prefer this one over the Spielberg one. Yeah. I think that message about what is really going to save people that's from the book, but I think it's more overt and a, maybe a little more religious in this version mm-hmm. But that is from the book, so it that has precedent to be in, like all the versions. What about you? What do you think? Which one do you like better? Um, I don't know. For maybe the the two thousand five version, but I also have a lot of problems with that one, and I don't know. They're maybe I like them equally, but for completely different reasons. Mm-hmm. Like. Mm. I, I, the 2005 version was, was the first version I ever saw. And when I first saw it, I was highly critical because it was so different from the book. Because like I said, I grew up with the book. And back then, that was like the standard for movies based on books was like, how close did they get to the book? And it's not close to the book at all. Like it's basically they've invented a story. But I've mellowed out on that criteria for rating movies. Like as long as they're telling a good story, I don't mind if they deviate from the book somewhat. So I like the 2005 version a lot better now than I did then, but I still have issues with it. And with this one, they do deviate a lot from the book, but unless you're going to do like the setting of the book, because the book is set in the late 1800s, unless you're going to do like a period piece you're basically going to have to invent your own story because you can use parts of the book, but the story is very much centered in the 1800s. So I don't mind that they're changing things up. With this one, they do change a lot of things, but I guess I don't mind that. I think I probably favor the 2005 version a little bit because I've seen it more and I have... Not that 2005 was that long ago, but I might have like a tiny bit of nostalgia for it because, I don't know, it was the first one I ever saw. I was really excited for it, even though I was critical back then. But as far as movies go, this one, 
at least for a science fiction period of that time, I think they did a great job with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting what you're saying, um, because um, there seems to be something of this material that um, I don't think I've ever seen a version of World of the Worlds that has not been set in the present of when that version was made, you know, mm-hmm. um, what you're saying about the book. So I think that's interesting that there's something about this story that makes it to be something specific about the time in which that version is being I think it's a bit of a, I don't know if it's, if it's like a Rorschach test or something like that, you know, that everybody brings their own time to it. Yeah, I think that that's probably what most people do when they take this story. And I think this is w- one of the few stories that I think it just works to update it for a modern time because there's always something that you can fit like Cold War or 9-11 that you can fit some current event into not exactly a metaphor maybe but like fit it into the narrative of the story and make it more topical mm-hmm. and as far as i know there has not been a mainstream adaptation of this that has been like a direct book adaptation there was a really cheap direct to dvd version i think the year after the spielberg version came out that I am fairly certain I bought because I was so excited to see another version and I don't know that I ever finished it because I was so bored. (laughs) So I need to dig that out and watch that again sometime and force myself to watch the whole thing. And then last year, there were two miniseries completely independent of each other. I believe one was in France and one was by the BBC one was modern day and one was set in the 1800s. And I haven't seen mm-hmm. either of those yet, but I'm planning to do those in the future. So I'm hoping that the BBC one will turn out to be good. Cause I think that, that was the one that was set in the 1800s. So if anybody can do a period piece with this, it would be the <laughs> BBC. So I have high hopes for that one whenever I get to it. Yeah. There were parts about this 1953 one that, I feel like, oh, I bet the uh, the Doctor Who people were influenced by this this movie. This That's very just, possible. Yeah, it's dealing with the Daleks, I feel like it's very similar. Mm, yeah. Yeah. To yeah. Uh, from what I've read, this what this movie was like super influential for a lot of other science fiction movies at the time. They took like different ideas or imagery and made their own stories out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read that the uh, sound effects were actually some. I was reading some people who were saying that's the most influential thing is the kind of the soundscape of the 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 spaceships and the way the laser beams sound um, kind mm. of redefined that sort of thing. And everything that came after is just kind of going off of these sounds that were created for this movie. I don't know how true that is, but uh, I kind of believe it seeing it now. Mm-hmm. That would make sense because, I mean, I can't really think of a big sci-fi space alien movie before this that would have set any of those, I don't know, staples of the genre up to be followed. I think this probably was, if not the first, it was one of the first. So that would make sense if that was something that was influential to future movies. Mm Mm-hmm. 
One thing interesting about this movie that's way different than a modern movie is the cast is actually pretty small. Uh, yeah. Anybody who has actually a vocal line and there's like under 15 people. Yeah, that's true. You would yeah, never you, see you that have now. The that odd includes side two characters. That includes two narrators. Mm. For this kind of movie, you would never see that now. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Well, I guess we could get into the movie itself. It opens with war footage, which I thought was kind of strange. Because they talk about World War One, then World War Two, and then the War of the Worlds. I don't know how much that really had to do with the story. I've, I just found it kind of interesting that that's how they wanted to open up the story. Because the book and other versions, they more open up setting up the characters rather than the war itself. Mm-hmm. It just seemed kind of odd that they started talking about the wars, and maybe that was a product of the time. You'd think that this wasn't that far removed from those wars, first of all. Second of all, they take a situation where we were fighting against each other, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, once this this threat comes in, all of a sudden, we are, we're, we're forced to work together. Uh, you know, that it kind of puts everything in perspective mm-hmm. in that way that all of a sudden we are humans, not Americans and Germans and, you know, all of that stuff like that, fighting something bigger than we can control. That makes sense. I guess the thing that stood out most to me from that was the fact that they don't really set up the characters at the beginning. You kind mm-hmm. of find out who the main characters are later. Cause I wasn't sure, like having no idea what was going to happen in this movie I didn't really know who the main characters were going to be because you have that, you have the narration and then you have like some just other people in the movie and you have the meteorite falling and you don't, I don't think you meet the main character, the scientist until I think that there's a fireman who, or a ranger who is sent out to find the scientists and deliver this message that they need somebody to go investigate. So then that's when you meet the main character or the male lead played by Gene Barry, Dr. Clayton Forrester. And you yeah. don't really get too much backstory with them either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's characters that you meet early on that you think are going to be big characters and then are taken out pretty quick, like mm-hmm. the pastor. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, you have this one guy, the one who's delivering the message, and I don't know what was up with him. He was... <laughs> He was kind of weird. The way he was like sitting super close to people and just like helping himself to everything, even their like cigarettes. That was just, I don't really know what the point of that was. He was just weird. It was like the kind of person who would make me super uncomfortable to be around. Yeah. Well, they have all different kinds of humans, as I yeah. think they're trying to show, you know, and then that kind of puts our, our heroes in the best light possible. Mm hmm. Well, then you have them going to investigate this meteorite, and it's drawn this big crowd. And I found it kind of funny, maybe not funny, but sort of funny, sort of maybe true to life, that these locals who are investigating this meteorite, they plan to turn it into a tourist attraction, which I could totally see that happening. Like if a meteorite landed in a little town, I could just bet that that little town would be on the map for a long time with people going there to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like a Roswell, all that. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And this is where you meet the other main character, 
Sylvia Van Buren, played by Anne Robinson. And she talks to Dr. Forrester all about Dr. Forrester. Like she knows all about who he is, but she doesn't recognize him, which at first I thought was weird. But then I was like, I guess maybe this is probably before people like him would even be on TV. So she's probably never even seen a picture of him. She's probably just read his work. I just found that kind of interesting that she could know all about this person and not have any idea who, what he looked like. That's true. Yeah. Different time. Yeah. Now you would not only know what they look like, you know, all about their personal life and their, That's their true. favorites on Facebook and <laughs> totally their blog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would have been a very different time. So then they all decide to, well, he needs a place to stay. So they decide that he's going to stay with her uncle, who is, was he a pastor or a priest? I can't remember. Pastor. Yeah. So he's going to stay with her uncle. And then they all go square dancing. And then you have these three guys who are, I don't know if they're left behind to watch over this media or whatever, but there's three people there and they see it opening up. And this is where... Well, I mean, I already knew, having read the book, but this is where you discover that the whatever has landed does not have good intentions, because they all get zapped. Yeah, it's pretty surprising. I don't know how much they were supposed to be feeling like they were set up as main characters. In the book, there's a guy who, I think he sort of feels like he's set up as a main character called Ogilvy, and he gets zapped. He's one of the first ones. He's the one who tries to go and make friends with him. He's waving the white flag. And he's the one who gets zapped in the book. But I don't think the, any of these were even named. And if they were, I mm -hmm. didn't remember. Yeah. And although I would say that because it happened so early on, I was not totally sure whether they were going to be big characters or not. So the, when they died, mm -hmm. it, was, it wasn't a huge surprise because I guess it is a bit of a staple sometimes to have a death early on to establish how dangerous things are in sci-fi and horror. Mm -hmm. um, but I was a mild surprise. I was like, oh, I guess these people that we, you know, we just saw them talk to each other for a couple of minutes and they seemed like fun guys are now dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was this a book that people that likely in 1953 would have, you know, would have known really well, you think? Do you have any idea that they'd be expecting? Oh, there it is. That was, this was like kind of like when I watched Little Women. I'm like, okay, here's this scene. Oh, oh there's that scene. Do you have any yeah, idea? I don't know. Um, H.G. Wells is kind of like a science fiction staple. So for people who were into that kind of story, it probably would be. But I don't know how familiar like a mainstream audience would have been. Hmm. So if somebody was going to see this because they knew the book, they would probably guess what was going to happen. But maybe the mainstream audience wouldn't have. I wonder if mainstream audiences might have been more familiar with the radio version from the from the late 20s oh, oh rather the late 30s point. um yeah i wonder how that compares to this if that is um you know i wonder if this is more similar to that than to the book well there is a similar scene in the radio version too because you have the reporter uh, mm -hmm. as far as i could tell he and he was the one who got zapped because there's a whole bunch of screaming and then the radio goes dead for a little while okay. So, yeah, maybe maybe people would have been familiar with that. I don't know how much replay that radio program got at the time, but they probably would have known the story or at least the general idea of the story from it. Yeah, interesting. So when these guys get zapped, this is 
at the same time, we're back at the square dance and everything goes dead. Lights, even watches go dead. So basically, in the book, it's a heat ray, but here it seems to be something different, something that is basically an EMP because it just shut down everything, like phones, everything. It says here on, in Wikipedia that I guess the sound effects of the aliens was created by an orchestra that they used the, uh, the violins mm. that they created a unique sound using parts of the score mm. uh, in order to make the sounds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is interesting. That's something we don't always think about this, like sound editors and, and sound designers from the mm-hmm. old, you know, the older times when you have to create sounds of like lasers and computers and you have no idea what they sound like. And you also don't have computers available to you, you know, in the 50s or even in the 70s. I remember seeing one of the Star Wars uh, behind the scenes documentaries and, and seeing how, um, you know, Ben Burt, the sound designer was kind of like, uh, had cables and he was just like smashing the cables trying to find weird sounds that he could use so um it's yeah, that's, a, you know it's a very creative um craft mm-hmm. yeah i always appreciate when people get really creative with sound design especially instances of where they are using the orchestra and i know this is completely unrelated but it reminded me of bambi talking about using the orchestra for sound effects because like mm-hmm. the little april shower song when it turns into a storm mm-hmm. all comparison. the music and the choir that's what they use as the sound effects for the storm there's not like not like out there recording a storm it's the orchestra is making the sound of the storm and that's that's one of my favorite things is when they can meld the two that that well that it just sounds so interesting and Maybe not exactly true to life, but it doesn't need to be. It's too, it's just creative and artistic. And I really, well, I mean, in, in this case, it doesn't have to be. I mean, because it's, no. you can make it whatever you want because they're yeah. aliens. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of the uh, design of the aliens with the, with the rainbows? Well, it depends on what, what you're talking about because the aliens, they're sort of, I mean, you don't actually really see the aliens themselves except for just brief glimpses. Mostly what you're seeing is the ships that they're in. And the ships that they're in, I think, were designed really well. Mm -hmm. I think it suffers a little bit when you actually see the aliens. (laughs) Because the aliens, at at least to me, I don't think they have that great of a design. They kind of look like if E.T. was like half robot. (laughs) They said that they were designed off of uh, jellyfish with movements inspired by red-eyed tree frogs, which is kind of interesting. Uh, mm. It did make me think a lot of the Daleks in yeah, Doctor Who. Yeah, I can see that, especially with the ships. Mm-hmm. And really, the ships, it's kind of interchangeable when people talk about the aliens, like even in the books, because the, the aliens were very rarely seen outside of the ships. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interchangeable. It's just the mm-hmm. aliens, when you see them outside of their ships in this movie, which is very rare, that's when I think it suffers a little bit, just because I don't know that... I think that they knew that it wasn't that great of an effect, which is why they used it sparingly, which I think was smart. Mm. I think they had a great effect for the ship, but not for the aliens, which is why you only see them like twice. 
I do really like the scene near the end when you just see the, the kind of like the alien hand coming out of the, yeah. of the ship um, and it's just kind of like, you know, grasping for life. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that was cool. It feels like a very classical uh, alien design, which I think made me, it gave me that kind of B-movie 1950s feeling <laughs> that I thought was cool. I think the way they shot that too at the end made a lot of sense, especially because the whole body of the alien wasn't the best but using just the arm in that way mm -hmm. i think that made a lot of sense and i think that they knew that that would be the most effective use of their prop yeah yeah i mean it just it creates tension because they are so impenetrable and mm -hmm. there's nothing that you can do about it and we like to think that we have some kind of control over the world and what's going on and so then to have i mean we've seen that obviously in the world of Corona, we have, we don't have control, <laughs> but yeah. the, uh, the, the, so when you have these creatures that are impenetrable, it's pretty scary. Yeah. That's, that's what we find out in the next scenes because the military gets called in at this point after these guys have been zapped. And I think that this is something that they kind of invented for the movie, because I don't remember this in the book, but these, ships have like a force field around them and i was kind of impressed with the force field effect this it seemed i don't know better than what you would expect from something in the 1950s i thought they did a really good job with having the military fighting them and then having the force field deflect everything i, I thought they did a great job with that effect yeah it was fun it, it, it i liked it too it was good there was one scene somewhere in here, I don't remember exactly where it came in, but there was a guy on the radio, like he was reporting on the radio during all of this stuff with the military. And I was just wondering if they threw that in there as kind of an homage to the Orson Welles radio play. Hmm. That's cool. It says here, each Martian machine is protected by an impenetrable force field that resembles, when briefly visible between explosions, the clear jar placed over a mantle clock or bell jar, cylindrical with a hemispherical top. This effect was accomplished by the use of simple matte paintings on clear glass, which were then hmm. photographed and combined with other effects and then optically printed together during post-production. That's, that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, it, it worked well. It's, yeah, it did work well. And, and it's like fun to, I mean, people talk about, you know, practical effects, practical effects, but I do think there's, something that it, when it takes like that much effort as opposed to uh, cg special effects these days it's just more interesting because you're kind of figure how did they do that like you're caught up in the in mm -hmm. the story but now you don't have that sort of how did they do that because you're just like oh they did it in the computer yeah you know? i kind of wish that there would be more movies that would be willing to try to go back to like some older techniques even if it wasn't like super successful, but they could maybe clean it up with the computer. But I just, I really I, like the practical effects and the, like the creativity yeah. of doing matte paintings for something like that. I just mm -hmm. think that's great. I wish more I, people would do that these days. It just makes it a little more fun. Mm -hmm. Well, in this, all this stuff with the military, there's one, one thing that kind of stuck out to me as just kind of interesting and just another reminder of the time period. The fact that they had, Sylvia, who in her day job, she's like a library science teacher, I think she said. 
she's serving snacks and coffee to the military. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that was um, disappointing, but not surprising to me that she's introduces this kind of scientist who knows all about the main doctor, you know, and she's uh -huh. such a fan of her, his work. But then at the end, she's just kind of like the girl of the movie. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's kind of what you get from 1950s. It's true. And I didn't think the romance worked really at all. Yeah. No, I think parts. you're right about that. <laughs> but in here we have the scene where her uncle, I guess, decides that he's going to, I guess, sacrifice himself. I can't remember exactly why he decided he was going to be the one to go out there. I think it's because he's a pastor and he... Yeah. It, it, I think he part, had partly, because he, he had a line that I wrote down. He says, if they're more advanced than us, then they should be nearer the creator. So maybe mm. he just thought he could reason with them. Yeah, that was my impression, was that he had this, this idea that, that since they were as higher beings, that he might be able to reason with them or that they would have some sort of answer, um, you know, and that he could approach things in, in peace, which, you know, ends up not being the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't work. He gets zapped. And basically after that, I think all heck breaks loose because they introduce this new weapon that basically disintegrates everything. Their effect for that was basically just having things kind of turn a different color and fade away. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the uh, old Batman. So, like, just kind of like, oh, oh. they're gone. I don't know, just kind of those sort of cheesy, like, pow, bang! Kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of without actually bad. doing that on the screen <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah what do you think that the movie in general has to say about religion i mean i guess evidently the the novel is not very religious evidently what i'm reading here well um, i'm i'm kind of of two minds because i'm re i've read things like people's ideas of what they are but the novel explicitly says that the aliens were basically taken out i'm gonna maybe not quite butcher the quote but it's similar something similar to defeated by the smallest life that god in his wisdom put on this earth something like that but there was also a character in the book who was called the curate who was basically like a pastor like a priest who kind of went insane so people are using that to say that H.G. Wells was anti-religious, but I think I think it needs to be a more nuanced view than that because he clearly attributed the defeat of the aliens to the wisdom of God, but he also showed that people who presume to speak for God are very fallible. So I think he he maybe was doing more of a commentary on the church rather than on religion. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think it's not just black and white. Like the book is not as anti-religious. I think that they upped the religious stuff in this movie, but I feel like there was some precedent for that in the book. They just made it really overt in the movie. Yeah. The movie is definitely, well, I haven't read the book, like I said, but the movie definitely to me seems to have, even if the, you know, the pastor, dies pretty early on the movie does seem to have a very venerable view of, of religion and and it and of faith i would say mm -hmm. well the pastor the pastor didn't die because 
he was a bad character. I think he he more it yeah. was more to show that he was a good character and the aliens were super evil because they didn't care and yeah, they killed totally. a good character. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very noble death for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And at this point you have Sylvia and Dr. Forrester fleeing. They get in an airplane which they end up crashing maybe in the desert or some kind of wilderness, like it's kind of barren. And you're kind of left not knowing exactly what happened to them. And it shows next day in the city. <laughs> I don't know if this is supposed to be funny, but I found it funny. <laughs> there was an old woman selling newspapers talking about the Martian invasion. And she's just knitting away while she's talking about the invaders. <laughs> I just thought that was kind of hilarious. And I don't know if they meant it to be, but I liked that scene. Yeah, there were some moments that tried to kind of be a little bit lighter, but, you know, it's pretty hard when you've got a whole city, you know, like massive destruction, mm-hmm. kind of like Man of Steel in that way. <laughs> mm, <yeah. laughs> the, the lighthearted moments are hard to pull off when yeah. the city's getting destroyed, you know, if there's like going to IHOP and whatever, Superman at IHOP, it just feels a little out of place. Mm-hmm. In here, you have some scenes with the army, and then you go back to Dr. Forrester and Sylvia, and they find a house. And I think that this, all this scene is their version of a scene from the book. And this would be the scene that I talked about earlier with the curate, except the curate is not in this scene. It's just these two characters. And they use this house as kind of a base. They're eating breakfast. And in this is a little bit of foreshadowing. She's telling a story about going to a church and feeling safe and i didn't think anything of that at the time but then when we got more towards the end i was like that was kind of important so then i went back and i wrote a note to remind myself to mention that when we're doing the review but at this point Mm -hmm. another alien ship lands on this house and kind of destroys it and that's when i knew that this was a scene from the book because the house that they're in in the book is destroyed and from this vantage point they're kind of watching the aliens and seeing what they're doing and learning more about why they're on earth so this is where you get like the most famous scene from this movie this is the one where i knew this was coming because it's i don't really know why i knew this but i've seen like clips once this alien ship has landed it sends in a probe and this scene was not parodied but it was i guess homaged in the 2005 version with the probe in that one where it comes in and it's looking around and he ends up chopping off the end of this probe and they save it to study it later. And somewhere in here, this is where you see the glimpse of the real alien. It's very brief. And when I saw it, I was like, yeah, I can see why they, they don't really want to linger on that because it wasn't the greatest effect. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, there's definitely some hokiness but in a way i feel like that's kind of its charm and again they don't really linger on it mm-hmm. uh like it's it's a sh- very short movie so that that helps to if be at least me be more forgiving yeah no i'm not like i'm not saying it is necessarily a bad thing because you definitely need to take into consideration when the movie was made mm-hmm. so this is early enough in film history that if something looks cheesy it's a lot more easy to forgive. Well, it's kind of, it's just feeling kind of charming, I feel like. 
Yeah, it would be. It feels a lot more charming than if the same thing were to happen in a movie made today. Yeah, uh, and it, there'll be another podcast later that I did with Nikki of Trivial Theater, <laughs> the alien effect from the movie we watched, the the practical alien. <laughs> it it was made in 2005 as well and this this one it's way better than the one that was made in 2005 so really this is not really a knock on this one because for as cheesy as it might have been it's still better than something worse made in modern times but we've even talked about that with dr who you know that sort of the sort of more hokey special effects that yeah. they have are kind of part of its charm in a way. Yeah. And I think even for people who like that kind of thing, even the one that I'm talking about that was made in 2005, the, the low budget bad version, there are people who are going to like that. So I guess mm-hmm. different strokes for different folks, I guess. It all depends on how you look at it. Yeah. So this is the, another part where you get like the big... I don't know, jump scare of the movie when Alien grabs her shoulder. I think that that's another thing that has been parodied and uh, homaged in other films because it's one that I, I knew was coming. I feel like they got, I'm trying, I'm looking over my notes. I feel like there's something that I'm missing because they had an alien eye at some point, didn't they? Yeah, they, they had the, the thing that come by on them in the destroyed house, if that's what you're talking about with the... It's kind of like a periscope kind of thing. Yeah, yeah they get they the blood the probe, off of there. I feel like they had something else too. I can't remember what it was. Maybe that was all. Yeah, they get anyway. the the telescope, and then they're able and they're able to get the blood off there, so that then they can start. Okay, to... maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Anyway, they end up escaping from this place just as the aliens destroy everything. So they eventually make their way to the military where they're studying these samples this probe and the blood i guess from the probe and this gives them this idea they're talking about using biological weapons which is a wholly new thing for this version and even though they didn't end up fully using that i don't know how i felt about that because i like the fact that in the book humans could do and did do nothing like everything that happened was purely either however you want to look at either by chance or by divine intervention so i wasn't sure how i felt about them like deciding to take this blood and use it against the aliens well what did you guys think about the whole atomic bomb thing i mean we think about it was only just a few years before that you'd had an atomic bomb used when this movie was made Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know only eight years earlier that they had you know hiroshima Mm -hmm. had happened and so here you have this very long section of the movie with uh while they're trying to do the research there's this whole effort to you know to this atomic bomb that's completely useless i feel like that has to have said something to the people at that time yeah I, I, w- I wondered a lot about that too, um, Rachel. And I guess that's the, the, the biggest thing that I'm wondering about with this movie is kind of what it's trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the atomic bomb, I can see that sequence totally working as a way to 
um, establish kind of the stakes and how, how dangerous this is, right? It's really ramping up the idea that these aliens are indestructible and we can't destroy them with anything that we have. But I was wondering kind of a little bit like you, what does it mean? What is the movie trying to say about uh, war and nuclear weapons, you know? Um, I feel like there's some other 50s um, science fiction movies like um, The Day the Earth Stood Still and things like that, mm-hmm. that I feel like have a very clear invasion of the body snatchers also. Mm. You know, it's a very clear political messaging. I don't know if this movie is quite as overt. So I feel like it's mm-hmm. a little bit more weirdly escapist in that sense. I don't know if you guys agree with that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think I probably agree because I didn't get any overt political message out of the atomic bomb scene. I think they probably were, weren't really thinking of it in that way. And maybe they were, but I feel like it was mostly there to show how indestructible the aliens were. Mm-hmm. It feels to me kind of how they, they use, you know, the 9-11 imagery in something like Batman v Superman, you know, or Man of Steel or all the superhero mm-hmm. movies, right? Like it, it really it has an impact on the people who are watching it because we remember when yeah. that happened mm. and, and how we felt, et cetera. But it doesn't really always have something to say about those events, you know? So That's probably guess, true. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's quite as, like, sort of fatalistic as saying that, like, we think that we, uh, we solved the problem of evil, you know, that's killing all these people people and you know we think we solved the problem in with the atomic bomb in 1945 uh but in reality it's kind of what god determined was going to happen happen and we're just sort of pegs in his plan i guess for lack of a better word i don't know if that probably is probably reading too much into it but i think there's something there in that line of thinking <laughs> yeah. if that makes sense I can see that I can see a, a, a version or a reading of the movie in which someone says that you know what the movie's trying to say is that we kind of see everything as um, that violence and war is going to be how we solve everything and actually the thing that solves the, this problem nothing to do with that right it's micro it's kind of mm-hmm. or, or you know uh, just message also fits in right yeah i could see it well after this all all the scenes the scientists and the bomb and talked about biological weapons and studying the alien stuff you have these scenes of the city evacuating into the hills and this is where you have another little scene that i think this one was supposed to be funny (laughs) there's an overturned ice cream cart (laughs) <laughs> that a little boy is basically raiding <laughs> devouring all the ice cream. <laughs> that one more than the the old lady knitting and talking about the aliens. That one is more like they had to have meant that as as a funny scene. Oh yeah, definitely. They were trying to lighten it up, no doubt. And then you have Dr. Forrester, he's got their research, the thing that he's assuming is going to save humanity. He's trying to escape this town, and for a while it's like empty, but then he runs into a crowd and is hijacked. He's trying to get his truck back to get his instruments, talking about them being their only chance, and 
at some point he I think he assumes that Sylvia has been hijacked too and he's trying to find her at this point this is where I was reminded of the earlier conversation about the church because when he wants to find Sylvia that's where he's going he's going to I think several churches because of that conversation and this is where you get a lot of the more overt Christian imagery Mm -hmm. and he eventually finds her and at this point the aliens are basically destroying the city and they're like approaching the church but this is where you realize that even though that they have the basic idea with the biological weapons uh i guess nature was way ahead of them because the aliens are slowing down and their ships are crashing and everything is quiet and then all these people who are in the church go out and they find the ship and this is where you get the scene with the hand reaching out of the ship and mm-hmm. The, it's eventually still you realize it's dead and then the church bells are ringing and the narrator's talking about what happened well people in the background are singing a hymn so it's like really overt at the end the message of the movie yeah i mean it literally spells it out with the narrator yeah and i think that they they're kind of adapting the passage from the book where they're talking about god and his wisdom defeating the aliens i i'm butchering the quote there but that's that's the basic idea but they're just really blowing that idea up and making it like a really i don't know beautiful religious scene with the church and the hymn being sung and everything yeah and one thing that's i think is interesting considering it's from 1953 is the movie is not all that all that patriotic the uh we think of the 1950s as being a very uh you know rah-rah america kind of Mm -hmm. time uh and i mean the military is pretty much useless and uh through the whole thing and it's sort of the scrappy scientists that that -hmm. that saved the day despite the government and despite the military and uh that are not really treated uh with much seriousness that their plans aren't as useful even though it ends up being actually what saves the day which i think is kind of interesting i didn't really even think of it from that angle but i wonder how much of that was intentional versus it needed to be that way for the plot i mean because this you're talking about a cold war this is the beginning of the cold war uh, that it would have been very easy to have made this sort of more of a nationalistic mm-hmm. kind of picture. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know. They didn't, which I think is kind of interesting. I don't know that you could do that kind of a movie with this story, make it a nationalistic America first patriotic picture, mm-hmm. because in the end, the story is about men being helpless and you can't really make a patriotic story out of this without completely changing or betraying the message of the story because that's kind of the a lot of the satire in dr strange love is this sort of jingoistic spirit to a lot of these sci-fi movies that then you know he's 
the, the whole betrayal of the president and the whole, you know, kind of a thing and the, the, the military man with their precious bodily fluids and, you know, all of that stuff is, is all kind of a, a satire on this type of filmmaking and that kind of attitude. Because Doctor Strangelove was in 1964, so it was we, you know, they just kind of come out of this period, and they were really in the Cold War then. And so then to mm-hmm. have Kubrick, you know, make his satire film then is was really commenting on a lot of this kind of stuff. I think so. I thought it was, I don't know, it was interesting in in that regard. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Even though in the end they were not as helpless but almost as helpless as the military they were on the right track before god intervened i guess you could say Mm -hmm. yeah i guess that's kind of the um i don't know this case in the book but i guess in the versions that i'm most familiar with kind of the very scary thing about the war of the worlds for me is this idea that it's just by chance or like you know it's nothing that we did that saved us from the situation it just mm. it was totally out of our hands we can't control it you know it was bigger than us so mm-hmm. i guess in this case you have like the presence of god but you know in the spielberg version it's more much more like it's by nature and if it maybe you know if we wouldn't have uh had the same luck we would have been doomed you know mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the thing yeah i think that's somewhat of the point of the story because if you look into some of his inspirations some of hg wells inspirations for the story there's one passage i think it's from the book or maybe it's something he said i can't remember we talked about it in the first episode when we talked about the radio play where he was i guess musing on the fate of some of the indigenous peoples of australia and how europeans had come in there and basically wiped them out And he was thinking about that and thinking like, what if somebody did that to us? Like there would be nothing we could do. And I think that's ultimately what prompted him to write the story. Well, that's interesting. As animation fans, what do we all think of Paul Frees being the narrator? That was kind of fun. Was that who narrated? I didn't even notice. Yeah. There's a big voice actor, one of the most prolific yeah, Ludwig von Drake. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, that's I didn't even notice and, that. That's great. Yeah. And talking of animation, I did not know that the producer of this movie, George Pal, was a really big animator originally in his career before he became a producer. According to some of the stuff I read, he was considered uh, Europe. And he did a lot of shorts with like kind of a stop-motion animation called Puppet Tunes. Yes, I actually, we just had, um, uh, I've covered Puppet Tune on Obscure Animation on my channel. Uh, and we just had the producer, Arnold uh, Lebovit on, who was a good friend with George Powell. And on, I just interviewed him on my channel. So yeah, it's really interesting, the Puppet Tune. They're going to come out with Puppet Tune 2 in uh, i think this year actually <laughs> randomly hmm. yeah so i need to i need to track that down I, w- I was aware of it because of your podcast but i haven't seen it i need to watch that yeah it's pretty interesting stuff 
So, yeah, I, I, I guess, and I also, I have to admit, I kind of go into sci-fi thing like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to like this because a lot of them, I'll be frank, I get kind of bored with a lot of sci-fi. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> um, and so I, I guess I kind of, this was better than I expected it to be. I enjoyed watching it. It was fun, interesting. I, you know, like I said, the pacing was nice. Um, so uh, it was fun. I, thanks for uh, giving us a chance to watch it. Yeah, thanks Thanks for doing it with me. I, I enjoyed it too, partly because I just enjoyed the story and partly because I like watching older movies and seeing how, how movies were made back then, seeing yeah. the different techniques. Yeah, it was fun. I liked it. So I guess that will be all for this episode. Do you guys want to let people know where they can find you? You can tell them a little bit about your podcast, which is the reason that I invited you both on. Sure. So um, Rachel and I are the hosts of a podcast called The Criterion Project. Oh, lost it, darn it. Oh, do you want to Rachel? Um, yeah, so Conrado and I are the hosts of a podcast called The Criterion Project. We both are subscribers to the Criterion channel, and we talk about a movie that is available on the channel every month or sometimes more than that, depending on the month. And uh, we like to even pitch our remakes of what we would do if we uh, remake. We talk about we have a pretentiousness scale, <laughs> which is helpful <laughs> for uh <laughs> the criterion channel so we have a lot of fun and uh, i think you'll really enjoy it and uh, we do quite mm-hmm. a variety of, of more recent films older films all different kinds and uh it's been it's been really fun we, we have different opinions on a lot of stuff and we agree on a lot of stuff and so it makes for a good discussion yeah and and i would add to that um that we at least i think we really try to make it very accessible people maybe um feel a little intimidated by Criterion or like film history or older movies or whatever like that, you know, um, we really feel, I feel like the show is really about finding how fun or how interesting and how approachable watching all these movies can be, you mm-hmm. know, that's kind of what we have the pretentious scale. Darn. Are you still there? Cutting out. Yeah. I don't know why we're having such bad luck tonight. Well, I'm sorry about that. Just go ahead and you, you can wrap things up, I guess. Yeah. Well, I guess I just, if you want to let people know where they can find you, and Rachel, you can, if you want to let people know where they can find Conrado in case we can't get him coming in. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, you can uh, find us at the Criterion Project and all over wherever you listen to podcasts and you can find us on twitter at at criterion pod and uh, you can follow me at rachel's reviews all over social media and itunes youtube all over the place so please check that out and uh and then also you can uh follow conrado at coco hits new york uh on twitter and he also has his blog so make sure to check that out And I will try to have links to all those things below as well. Okay, well, thanks for joining me for this. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Appreciate it. Yeah, hopefully we can do this again sometime. This is a lot of fun. All right, yeah, take care. 
Bye. Bye, everyone. The Martians had no resistance to the bacteria in our atmosphere to which we have long since become immune. Once they had breathed our air, germs which no longer affect us began to kill them. The end came swiftly. All over the world, their machines began to stop and fall. After all that men could do had failed, the Martians were destroyed and humanity was saved by the littlest things which God in his wisdom had put upon this earth. Thank you so much to Rachel and Conrado for joining me for this episode of Every Version Ever. If you want more from them, I'll have links to the Criterion Project, as well as their other projects and social media in the description below. Next time on the show, my friend Eli Sansa will be joining me to talk about the 2005 Steven Spielberg adaptation. That was the first adaptation of the story that I ever saw, so I'm excited to get into that. So thanks for listening to this episode of Every Version Ever. We'll see you next time.